0: what's up everybody welcome back to another episode of wildlife cake and cocktails i have a wonderful drink here with me this is the black cat cocktail mm. Mm. fantastic uh it is uh vodka uh cherry brandy a little bit of cola and a little bit of cranberry juice And I also have a lovely bit of cheesecake, which is not so themed, but the black cat definitely is because we're going to be speaking with a uh, renowned feral cat scientist here in Australia. So let's get to it. Her name is Professor Sarah Legg. She's a wildlife ecologist, Professor at ANU and a Principal Research Fellow at the University of Queensland, also working at the Threatened Species Recovery Hub. Uh, Starting with a diverse interest in behaviour and ecology um, and evolution as well, she spent many years in diverse research and conservation management fields. Much of her work focuses uh, focuses on threatened species monitoring, uh, understanding impacts of fire and feral animals and management of these risks on a landscape scale. She's been awarded the BirdLife Australia of Cerventi Medal for Ornithological Research and the WA State Environment Award for her regional fire management work, and is a member of numerous conservation advisory committees such as the Christmas Island Cat Eradication Project, BirdLife Australia's Threatened Species Committee. She uh, also recently co-authored the book Cats in Australia, Companion and Killer by John Warnowski, Sarah Legg, and Chris Dickman, uh, available via CSR Publishing as of June 2019. Um, We'll put a link down the bottom there below as well. Uh, you can uh, follow the uh, Threatened Species Recovery Hub on Twitter at TSR Hub. Uh, let's bring her in now. Sarah, hi, how are you doing? Good, how are you? Yeah, very well. A little bit cold up here um, in Brisbane. We've uh, finally passed the middle of the winter solstice, but it is a little chilly. How about you? Where uh, Are you in uh, Brisbane at UQ at the moment or down at ANU?
1: No, I live in northern New South Wales, um, so not... To, not too far from you, Daniel near
0: Ah, wonderful. Okay. A little bit chilly down there as well, I imagine at the moment, but uh, probably not as bad as down there. Pro- probably not as bad as uh, down at ANU in Canberra, right?
1: Probably not.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I have my uh, lovely black cat here and a little bit of cheesecake. How, how are you traveling? Do you happen to have a, a cake and beverage as well?
1: I've got uh, coffee and I've got chocolate, which is my sort of greedy thing of choice.
0: Ah, perfect, perfect. Well, look, um, I guess uh, we should get straight into it. You know, through uh, all all of these shows, I always do a lot of background research and uh, obviously I I know a lot of your work prior to that as well. You've had quite a, a, I guess, long and storied uh, career in ecology, working with a lot of different species ranging from cooperative behavior and lions to a wide range of birds, including Kookaburras, kingfishers um, in northern Australia, and and Papua New Guinea, uh, the eclectus parrots, palm cockatoos, uh, cockatoos, uh, through to working on things like fire ecology and threatened species in the Kimberley region, and uh, obviously much more, including the uh, feral cat issue. Um, that's a that's a really broad range of really interesting topics, right? Like, do you do you have many uh, like favorite? species or group to work on or, or do any of those experiences particularly stick out or are they all fairly fascinating and important to you?
1: Oh yeah. It's it's hard to, to, to pick favorites. And you know, when you, when you list it like that, it sounds like a sort of ragtag of different things in different places, but there was, (laughs) there was always a thread that was connecting, you know, one thing to the next thing. So, you know, for, for a while I was very interested in social animals, Um, So I had been working on, as a research assistant for an American academic in Tanzania, working on lions. From there, I moved to Australia, and I I wanted to keep working on social animals. But in Australia, the mammals tend to be solitary, but our birds have really high incidence of cooperative breeding, so I switched to working on birds. Um, So it's, you know, transitions like that, like going from lions to kookaburras seems like a sort of bizarre change but actually there was a thread of continuity but in terms of picking favorites um, um yeah i've always liked cats uh, even as a kid i would always be uh, rescuing stray cats much to my mother's horror <laughs> um and my first job in scotland if you could call it a job i wasn't really paid it was on scottish wild cats and then obviously i worked on lions for four years um, and i've played around with feral cats for for a long time now so yeah, I've always had a thing for cats. I think they're amazing, and I've always had a bit of a thing for kingfishers. They're just—I uh, love their the colours, the diversity of colours, and um, I, I find their characters really tough and gritty, and I, I really like that about them.
0: I, I guess obviously as well, including our uh, our large woodland kingfishers here in uh, in Australia, the kookaburras, which you've done some research on too.
1: That's right. So you know, it's um it's one of those funny accidents of um history where europeans got the naming rights (laughs) but because the kingfisher in europe is a fish-eating bird the whole group were called kingfishers but in fact most kingfishers don't fish most kingfishers are like the kookaburra they live in dry um, habitats and just hunt off the ground
0: so those uh, woodland ancestral kookaburras are, uh, or, and those types of kingfishers are ancestral to the more derived
1: fishy-eating right. fishy yeah. Fish-eaters fishy eater, fish are a derived um, lineage, Yeah. So the original kingfisher was a sort of ground hunter, like the kookaburra, but smaller. Wow. kookaburra is the biggest kingfisher. Or the kukubos are the biggest kingfishers.
0: Fascinating. There's, there's a lot of examples like that where you think uh, the the taxa might really be European, like mistletoes, right? Um, mistletoes apparently have their origin in Gondwana, but the most famous one happens to be the European one around Christmas.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Lots of examples like that.
0: <laughs> yeah. Fascinating. Um, and uh, you also uh, dreamed of being a plant hunter at some point, I hear.
1: Yeah, as a as a young kid, um, I think I was always attracted by the idea of adventure and, and getting to you know exotic places. And I, I don't know, I must have read something or seen something on the telly. But I thought if I was a plant hunter for Q, that was going to get me to places that I wanted to be.
0: <laughs> could, could you explain Q for uh, for the people who don't know about this uh, awesome uh, botanical uh, organization that is Q?
1: yeah, well, it's you know, it's a very famous botanical organization in in the u k. And um I, I suppose particularly during the Victorian e- era, they would have been doing a lot of their collections around the world as part of that sort of imperial colonial push to gather information. But yeah, it did lend itself to lots of, Great adventure stories for young kids, I think, and I always found that very attractive.
0: Yeah, right, and a lot of uh, amazing plant discoveries as well, obviously too. Yeah. Um, so uh, I guess uh, speaking of uh, you know, as uh, yourself being uh, interested in this stuff as a as a younger, upcoming uh, student and ecologist, uh, do, do you have any advice for uh, for the uh, young ecologist, particularly, I guess, on maintaining a ecological career through I guess you've probably seen some uh, pretty pretty tumultuous times as well, um, but even, you know, some of the uh, social challenges that we're seeing today with COVID and, and with uh, the Black Lives Matter movement and all of the pressures that everybody's facing. How do you, how how would you, uh, do, do you have any advice uh, even for young ecologists on maintaining a bit of focus or, or anything like that?
1: You know, it's hard to give advice because things are changing so quickly um, and, you know, with, as you mentioned, all this sort of, big world stresses, but also like the whole discipline of biology has changed a lot in my lifetime and it will keep changing. So there's been a very noticeable shift towards um, uh, using, you know, more advanced technology and a lot of desk-based approaches to e- ecology and conservation. But uh, so I think, you know, if, if you're interested in field ecology, which is where where I'm coming from, then um, I guess that the two things – that you want to keep trying to do is to maintain that skill of being able to observe. Not everything can be solved by your laptop. <laughs> so, you know, you need to spend time in amongst it, soaking it in and, and learning to watch and notice what's going on. Um, and like, you know, obviously, well, I think that gives you a great sense of stillness and connection to the to the world. And it's, 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 it's part of what motivates you to keep doing what you do so I think that's incredibly important and the other thing I think if you're a field biologist is to or field ecologist is to make sure you get lots of diverse field experience as early as you can because it seems to be getting harder and harder to get that kind of um, just a range of different types of work different habitat different animal groups get that early because a it'll help you form your own or make decisions about what you want to do but it's really clear, you know, when you've looked at lots of CVs, um, as I've done, someone who's got that kind of motivation to go out there, find those experiences, and get those skills under their belt, it says a lot about their character. Um, so I, I think, you know, those two bits of advice to be learn to be still in nature and get all the fieldwork experience you can.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I I think um, in some senses that sword cuts both ways, right? Like you want your lab people getting out in the field and seeing the lab or desktop results be truthed and really understand what they're doing in the office and seeing it and kind of getting a feel for it in the field. And the same thing with the people in the field, with the speed of technological and methodological advancements, you want them keeping up as well, right?
1: Absolutely, yep.
0: Awesome, and and uh, you guys also recently speaking of uh, uh, I guess uh, putting all of this field stuff together, you guys recently put together uh, along with uh, your co-authors uh, cats in Australia, companion and killer recently available in CSIRO Publishing. I've got a uh, short description here for our audience. Uh, Cats in Australia brings feral cat research together, documenting the extent to which cats have subverted and are continuing to subvert Australia's biodiversity. But the book does much more than spotlight the impacts of cats on Australian nature. It describes the origins of cats, And the global spread their long-standing and varying relationship with people their global impacts and their ecology it also seeks to describe the challenge of managing cats and the options available to constrain their impact so obviously trying to tie in a lot of uh, a lot of different uh, field and lab and uh, historical research here as well and socio sociological stuff so obviously you've got many many years in the uh, field of uh, feral cat research how do you? How did you guys uh, go about synthesizing all of that into one book for, uh, I guess, more of a public audience?
1: Yeah, I guess the audience is is um, a bit mixed. Like it's it's a very well referenced book, so you know if you want to to um, get to the source material for anything, you you can easily do it by reading the book. But we tried to um, try to write it in an accessible style, I guess, so the audience could be broad in terms of how you put that stuff together I mean obviously when you work in a field for a long time you've got a pretty good handle on um what's out there and what the sort of pertinent topics are so then it's just a question of you know structuring deciding how you're going to structure the book and then doing the extra research that you need to do to fill the content of the book and off you go and it's surprising like you know you know I would have said I I thought I knew quite a lot about cats but when you have to sit down to write a book you're you're often touching on material that you don't normally spend a lot of time thinking about. Um, so that was, I found it extremely enjoyable. So things like, you know, learning of reading a lot of the literature about how cats came to be domesticated So the origin of cats. It wasn't something that I'd, I knew the the basics, but it wasn't something that I delved into in a lot of detail, and that was a lot of fun.
0: Right. So like uh, even taking things back to written uh, by some of the old Egyptologists I hear about uh, the presence of cats in uh, in africa and uh, and egypt and and sorry, the Middle East as well, is that correct?
1: Yeah, that's right, because cats were domesticated in um Egypt. Um so a, a lot of our information about cats from those days comes from, Egyptologists. So you know you're reading some really material that's presented in very different ways. So that was a lot of fun. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. And and obviously very important considerations when when it comes to dealing with something as contentious as as feral cats. Right. Uh, you guys have it in the title there. It's not just killer. It's also companion, which is mm. so so important. It's such a big part of the, this discussion. Is that uh, humans uh, who have pet animals wouldn't want to give them up, nor should they necessarily have to.
1: Yeah, that's right.
0: Yeah. So I guess how, how do you find a balance between the conservation message with, I guess, compassion for people and and pets? And is, is, a, is a direct, hard scientific approach the best way to go?
1: Oh, I, well, I think in this case, the two can be easily reconciled, actually, because, um, you know, we know in Australia, feral cats or cats that are let out into the environment feral or pet um wreak havoc and all we need to do if you're a pet owner all you need to do to to stop your pet from wreaking havoc havoc is keep it indoors or keep it in a secure outdoor area and if you do that the um your cat will probably live longer will get less diseases right won't get get injured by cat fights or being hit by cars so there's actually a very strong welfare argument for containing your cat so to me I mean cats are fantastic pets and um, I understand why lots of people love them I've had pet cats myself and if you keep them indoors you're doing your pet a service and you're doing wildlife a service so it's quite easy to to reconcile those two issues I think it's interesting with cats because if you look through time, like since they've been domesticated, they have more so than than maybe any other domesticated animal. They've really flip-flopped in terms of how people relate to them. Um, so the ancient Egyptians, to the ancient Egyptians, cats were sacred. Um, so you weren't allowed to kill a cat. That, that was a crime, unless, of course, you were a priest, in which case you were allowed to kill them by the thousands to make mummies um, so people could buy them and make offerings. They were sacred animals, and um, but then you get to medieval times in Europe, and cats were um synonymized with you know devil witches, they were thrown up off the um tops of towers, they were burnt, you know, terrible things were done to them. So they're really,
0: I believe, there was also the uh... The French cat massacres against the uh, the like bourgeoisie cat owners is that correct?
1: I haven't heard that. Tell me about it.
0: I'll I'll have to try to. Find, but there's a there's actually a book. Uh, I will I will find it for you. I believe it's called the uh, the French cat massacre. Um, I'll find it for you after this. Um, but it's Ooh. it's basically about uh, various ways that cats have been um, persecuted by humans throughout history. Yeah. Um. More so, not so much for their uh, conservation impacts, but because of what they represent. Um, in society for for whatever reason, which changes throughout time in a really interesting way.
1: Yeah, exactly. I
0: I guess for you, uh, reading all that stuff with the Egyptologists and uh, the history, has that uh, understanding of the history of human-cat interaction helped you place cats in in an ecological context here in Australia?
1: A bit, I think, because... uh... With cats, although they were domesticated in the sense that the the Egyptian priests took control of their breeding and were artificially selecting for cats that they could then kill and sell as offerings, Um, so, you know, that's what uh, fueled the domestication process, that control of the breeding. That's how all domesticated animals have been created, if you like, by controlling their breeding. But cats are a bit different to dogs and horses in, in the sense that I don't think we got as far through the domestication process (laughs) as we have with other animals. So, you know, cats find it very easy um, to step out the door and become wild again. Um, They're not dependent on us in the same way that other domesticates are. Um, And I I think that... um, that goes along well. That basically explains why that there's this continuum between pet cats, stray cats, feral cats, and cats. Individual cats can move along that continuum. They're not perfectly domesticated yet.
0: Yeah, and I, I believe there was a study showing that there's a fair amount of gene flow between domestic and feral populations, even to this day.
1: Yeah, certainly between uh, pets and strays. So strays being ferals that live around towns. Right. We actually don't have a great handle. Of On how much gene flow there is between urban ferals, strays, and bush ferals, but that would be well worth finding out.
0: Right. I I guess you'd need a a decent sample set of some pretty good uh, nuclear genetic data to kind of see where the different integrates kind because it's going to, it's not going. There's so many of them that it's going to probably be a fairly diffuse gradient and a little bit hard to pin down. Mm. I imagine. Yeah. Well, look. Um, uh, being so easy to rewild, um, we do know that there is a, a fair few of them out there. Um, previously on the podcast, we um we spoke with uh, Professor Wynarski um, about your paper, um, from its uh, leg at all 2017, with uh, estimates on the numbers of cats that are out there, and I believe it was between uh, 2.1 and 6.3 million. Uh, has there been many updates to those estimates, or are they still, or were they about on the money?
1: Um, they well, we, we think they're on the money, and there have there haven't hasn't been any updates to those numbers but you know from from that kind of platform i guess we then did um our team did a heap of work to estimate the toll of those cats on different vertebrate groups and invertebrates
0: right and i think that came to what 377 million birds per year um that's about 1 million birds per day uh 815 million mammals per year so that's about 3.1 million per day um reptiles was a a little bit lower 1.8 million per day um so that was uh, 649 million per year and uh this year just recently you guys uh put out one that uh, was a little bit uh uh, interesting. The frogs, which uh, I, I never really considered would be really high on the diet, but obviously pretty much everything is. So this is wanaski et All 2020 predation by introduced cats, fearless catus on Australian frogs, uh, a compilation of species records and estimates of numbers killed in wildlife research. Uh, Basically compiled 53 cat dietary studies looking at the mean number of frogs in dietary samples by the number of cats. And the mean frequency of occurrence was about 1.5%. Not huge, but still the annual estimate is around 92 million frogs. Um, and thirty native frog species. Uh, luckily, no evnt species were on there. Uh, that's threatened species. Uh, but uh, this might simply be because, well, first of all, they're a little bit rarer and have smaller ranges, and there's not a lot of uh, dietary cat studies that happened in those areas. I guess there's uh, some future research needed to really understand the conservation impacts of those kind of numbers on
1: frogs. Yeah. Well, really on on. Um I guess you can say that across that whole set of studies. So we also did invertebrates, that's come out just recently. Um, and at the estimate there was uh, 1.1 billion a year invertebrates. Um, so f- frogs are um, particularly tricky because a lot of species have quite small ranges. So it's easy to miss them in a cat diet study, but also their remains don't hang around as readily in a cat's stomach as say fur does or feathers. So it could be underestimated, right. but yeah, I mean those those numbers are um they're very big, so they're always shocking. but the, the real test of impact is whether that predation is causing populations to decline. and um, you know we've got pretty good evidence, different sorts of evidence for cats driving declines in mammal populations, but the evidence for cats driving declines in some in a frog population, for example, is we don't have good evidence for that. It doesn't mean that they don't, but we just don't have the evidence for it as robustly. Right.
0: And you guys also did uh, some work to identify exactly what species um, are most at risk, Um, partly from dietary studies and and such. I understand that the, uh, obviously a lot of the small mammals, small to medium sized mammals pretty much need complete physical separation for, for, for there to be, much success. Uh,
1: yes, yeah, some of them. Um, it depends a bit. It's it's partly a function of size. They've got to be the right prey size for cats, but also the sorts of habitats that they live in. So, the denser, uh, either forest dense or rock dense, the habitats are, then um, animals living in those areas are relatively protected from cats. But yeah, there's um, you know, there's a, a, a few dozen species that. Um, are either at extreme risk from cat predation or very high risk. And really we want to make sure that at least some of those populations have complete physical separation from cats if we want to stop extinction.
0: Right, right. And and uh, this is uh, just speaking for our feral cats at the moment. As of just recently, April 2020, I believe, you guys put out another fantastic paper, which I'm actually going to bring up here. That's a leg at all. Uh, we need to worry about Bella and Charlie, the impacts of pet cats on Australian wildlife. And here we go. Um, so we have the paper right here. Uh, excellent paper, um, and uh, compiling again results from uh, 66 different studies on the impacts of Australia's domestic cat. Uh, the average uh, 186 reptiles, birds and mammals per year, mostly native, at the total of 390 million per year. That's um, spatially that adds up uh, between four and a half to about 8,000 native animals killed per kilometer squared inhabited by pet cats. Across six Australian studies of pet cats, around 71, uh, 71.1% roam outside. And uh, that may be an underestimate, obviously, as a study of uh, pet cat roaming behaviour found many cat owners mistakenly believe that their pets do not roam outside. Um, Of 177 cat owners who believe their cats were contained indoors at night, 39 actually had high nighttime ranges of over one hectare. I found that really interesting. So the per capita kill rate of pet cats is 25% of that of feral cats. However, pet cats live at much higher densities. So the predation rate of pet cats per square kilometer in residential areas is 28 to 52 times larger than predation rates by feral cats in native environments and 1.3 to 2.3 times greater than predation rates per kilometre by feral cats living in urban areas. Uh, Fascinating paper. Um, And uh, yeah, you can see some of these numbers here uh, in this table, obviously native mammals, birds and reptiles in the million 66, 79 and 82. Uh, Large amounts of uh, predation um, and uh, yeah, uh, large amounts by domestic cats as well, which um, I guess... We weren't necessarily certain about how much how much predation domestic cats cause compared to feral cats, but seems to be uh, quite significant.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's uh, we're a bit shocked ourselves at that, and I guess you know we've always been um, we've been you know our team, but also um, I guess conservationists in general and, and government have been a bit careful about focusing our attention on ferals. In order to not make people feel like we were going after their pets, so you know we haven't really done a lot of work on on pets as a result. But we just thought, look, it's time we kind of lifted the lifted the lid <laughs> on pet cats and had a look.
0: <laughs> and had a look, yeah, yeah, and uh, not 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 the best results. And, and again, obviously, nobody wants to victimize uh, pet owners, uh, but the results do speak for themselves somewhat.
1: Yeah, they do, and I mean, you know, it's not when you think about it, it's not that surprising. Like how many times have you heard people say, Oh, we used to have blue wrens in our garden and then the neighbor's cat moved in and they're gone. Like, you know, it it is in our experience that cats affect what you see in your garden. Uh, So we shouldn't be too surprised.
0: Yeah. Well, look, luckily um, I guess Australia has already some growing public awareness uh, and support for some of these, uh, feral cat issues, correct. So it makes things maybe a little bit more easier to manage, and maybe the the uh, issue of even domestic cats might make make it a bit easier to uh, broach with with pet owners in in this country.
1: Uh, for sure. so you know there's, there's been a few uh, a bit of work, not by us by other people, um, to survey uh, public awareness of cats and support for cat management in Australia and in overseas countries. And Australia tops the charts. So that the Australian public is much more aware of cat impacts and much more supportive of management actions to reduce impacts, not just by ferals, but also by pet cats. And interestingly, even pet cat owners tend to support reducing impacts from cats. So we're, we're in a much better position to, to, um, to do something about um, cat impacts, including pets. In fact, when you think about it, if only 71% of pet cats are roaming, that means about 30% of cats are already kept indoors. So we already have quite a big fraction of highly responsible pet cat owners. We just need to try and increase that fraction.
0: Right. What What is that fraction? Do you know what that fraction here is in comparison to other countries?
1: Um yeah, I can't give you the exact numbers off the top of my head, but in a place like the UK, it'd be less than ten percent of cats are kept indoors. I think it might even be less than five. It's quite different. Wow. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Right. What What do you think is uh, the the cause behind that? Do you think it's uh, our uh, I guess understanding of our sensitive ecology here and the amount of education that goes into feral cat issues, or or why do you think we're uh, we're a little bit different in that regard?
1: Um, well, certainly those two factors that you mentioned, awareness and, and education, um, I, I guess there's underlying cultural differences as well in the way that people view cats. I think people in the UK are more likely to consider it cruel to keep a cat indoors. But I suppose that comes back to education. You know, We've had a lot of education here from vets and welfare specialists telling us it's not cruel to keep your cat indoors. Your cat will be fine. And maybe that still needs to happen in Europe
0: yeah well look I, I can I can see it here in Brisbane as as a, as a snake catcher and relocator we do see fairly frequently large carpet pythons eating cats I believe there was a one week in uh, not here in Brisbane but up in Townsville where over a week they had I think five or six uh, cats get eaten by the scrub pythons that are out there so not just snakes as well there's wild dogs there's all those other risks I can see that here in Australia with some of those uh, predatory risks uh there might be a bit more of a uh, tendency to keep your cat, uh, indoors where it's safe.
1: That's a really good point, actually. Yeah. I hadn't thought of that, that that's a big difference between here and the UK. Yeah.
0: Well, yeah, there's not a lot of carpet pythons out there as, as I understand.
1: I don't think so. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's probably, a, probably a few keepers who've, uh, you know, had a few escapes, but I don't think they make it through the winter. Um, all right, well, look, we should move on to, uh, I guess, uh, if there is any, um, how uh, solutions, towards some of these uh, feral cat crises. So as, as we've been discussing, indoor humane cat keeping. So uh, the Humane Society of the United States uh, has said that indoor cats can live up to four times longer. So I guess in all of that, you need a bit of enrichment. Cats are intelligent animals, right? So I guess uh, how do you feel about the idea of outdoor cat runs, Se- secure outdoor cat runs, leash walking, or these other ways to get cats outside in a controlled way.
1: Yeah, I mean I think leashed walking is good for some cats. Uh, other cats are less compliant. <laughs> um,
0: I've I've personally yeah, seen it's this. It's quite yeah.
1: hilarious. Um, yeah and I think you know outdoor cat runs um they seem like a good idea to me. I, I think in a lot of cases they may it might partly make the owner feel better to know that their cats get, get outside. Um I'm not sure what the cats how much the cats discriminate between being inside and outside. But I think that, <laughs> you know, if they're behaviorally enriched, uh, you know, um, sitting at a window watching things on the outside might be as good as being in a cage that's outside. I just, I don't know. Right. But, yeah, I think, you know, if you're going to have a, a a cat and look after it properly, keep it indoors, you need to keep it behaviorally um, enriched for sure. Um, and I guess maybe it's one of the problems with, with cats, dare I say it, but compared to dogs, there's a perception that cats are an easier pet to look after. So, you know, I think if you're a lazy pet owner, a cat's an easier pet to have because you can one night, just not come home till 11 and not worry about the cat that you've left outside.
0: Right. They're a bit more solitary like that.
1: Yeah. I think people just, some people maybe don't feel the same level of responsibility to the, to the cat. So, you know, that's probably a behaviour change, or attitude change in people that we need to address. But anyway, I think, you know, managing the impacts of pet cats technically is really simple. Keep the cat contained, right. whether it's indoors, outdoors, on a leash, problem solved. Feral cats are much harder not to crack, controlling dead impacts. Right. Um, and so that that's still a challenge and will be a challenge for some time. You know, over the last few years, we've gotten a lot Better at it. Um, there's been some new technologies. So there's new um, bait formulations now, poison bait formulations that are specifically designed to target cats. They're being used quite extensively in WA. And um, the reason that they can be used extensively there is because the poison in the bait is a poison that's found naturally in plants in the southwest of WA. And so that native fauna are tolerant to that poison, but introduced fauna like cats and foxes are not. So if you put this poison in a bait and it's eaten by a numbat, for sake of argument, numbat will be fine. Right. Not that a numbat would eat a poison bait, but you get my drift. But um, if a cat or a fox eats it, it'll it'll die. So that's been used quite extensively in the southwest of WA, and the results look promising. Some of the work that I've been involved in in northern Australia and and now it's been replicated in other places is showing that if you manage habitat. So by managing fire and grazing so that you maintain a really structurally diverse ground layer, that reduces the hunting efficiency of cats. So that's probably the best thing you can do at scale to reduce the impacts of cats in the tropical savannas and possibly parts of the desert.
0: Right, is to maintain that ground cover for those uh, little ground dwelling animals, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. Look after the habitat. Right.
0: Yeah. And look, uh, aside from uh, from uh, keeping cats indoors, uh, what are your opinions on things like desexing, uh, predation deterrents such as bells and lights around the collar? Um or even uh, things, uh, this is one thing that uh, I obviously speak with a lot of reptile people about, a licensing or permit system for keeping cats um, similar as to what you actually need for keeping native reptiles or even poultry.
1: Um, yeah, so there's a, a mix of things there So that you've mentioned. Some of them like the bells and sonic deterrents and collars, all those sorts of things, they're all designed to reduce the, the hunting efficiency of hunting success of individual cats. Some of them work to some extent. But they don't work completely, so they might um, they might reduce the, the predation rates, uh, successful predation rates, but they won't completely eliminate it. So they don't. It, you can't beat just keeping the cat indoors. Um, desexing is is important for a, a slightly different reason. It's just that if if you don't desex and you need to desex before that cat gets becomes sexually mature. Before the female cat becomes sexually mature, so you need to do it early, like before five months of age. If you don't do that, then you end up with unwanted litters, and they're the cats that are more likely to get dumped right, become strays or feral cats in tans. So desexing is really important. And then the licensing fee, well, there is um some councils have registration fees for cats. Um, and I, I think they're very. Useful and important because a they increase the value of your pet. You know, if you having to shell out for something, um, its value increases and you'll look after it differently. But it also it's a way for the local government to raise in revenue that it can then use on other cat management activities.
0: Right, right. I think um, um, that was uh, in the figure in your your guys' recent paper, which I, which I want to have a quick look at here. Um, as you mentioned, uh, the uh, containment is the simplest and uh most cost effective option which you can see right here um you've got the uh, high cost on uh the further to the right and the highest effectivity, uh, most effective, highest
1: effectivity,
0: <laughs> most effective, uh, on on the uh, the y-axis here. And you can see right there, smack bang in the middle, containment, twenty-four uh, hour cat containment. And uh, you can see here on the right, with a little bit of uh, you know registration, then the revenue that comes uh, in from that does does also help and can be put towards uh, you know other other management things. You can see here though, uh, exclusion fencing quite a high cost solution Um, you can see on the uh, the right side uh, figure here obviously uh, also very effective and uh, maybe necessary in some of those uh, more remote areas I guess
1: yeah well there's actually uh, some councils have have there is exclusion fence fenced areas even in places like the outskirts of Melbourne so it doesn't doesn't have to be in remote areas it can be in you know urban parklands. oh well near where I live uh, my one of the local council here has got some barrier fencing, so they're not—it's not complete. It doesn't encircle bushland; it's just a linear fence. They—they um, they don't work very well. The cats just go around. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: that's unfortunate.
1: So, but yeah, you don't need to be in remote areas to use exclusion exclusion fencing. But the trouble with exclusion fencing is it costs a lot to build, and then you must maintain it. Like you need someone checking that fence once or twice a week. So it's there's an ongoing cost associated with it.
0: Right, right. So look, we did mention some of these uh, other solutions, such as managing fire and grazing, managing dingoes, landscape baiting, um, and there is the the new uh, Felix at traps as well, which um i wanted to get your opinion on They obviously um they seem to have a fairly low uh rate of misfire pretty much they it knows how to target cats uh, and shoots that little gooey ball of uh, toxin towards the back of the cat's neck which uh, uh mammals don't groom uh, you know as as fastidiously as cats do so they the cats are very likely to lick it off and um and it seems to be quite an effective solution. What about things like uh, the uh, adaptive evolution fast-tracking, taking uh, uh, some predator-aware individuals and transplanting them to predator-naive populations uh, to try to get some adaptive genetics into that population Um, as per some of the studies from uh, Chris Jolly and uh, Ben Phillips up in the north?
1: Yeah, yeah. There's um, a a bit of a flourishing of work in in that area now. So there's sort of... I guess it's two different approaches. One has been um being used during mammal translocation. So before the release, people have tried to train those individuals to be frightened of cats or foxes. Um so they've given them really, you know, pretty heavy handed aversion training.
0: Terrifying them with cats.
1: <laughs> yeah, basically. <laughs> Uh, but there's a, a a new sort of avenue of work that's that's underway now where where people are trying to expose the native animals to a controlled level of predation by cats for example to try to um push selection in in that native population towards behaviors or morphology that will help them withstand will help the population withstand the predation from the cat and um the results have been uh, I, don't, I don't know if promising is the right word, they're in the right direction. So, you know, if you if you apply that kind of control pressure, you do start to see some morphological changes. Like betongs near Canberra were getting um, longer legs, which probably means they can run faster. Wow. Certainly, changes in b- behavior. Some work in arid recovery uh, was, has documented changes in how shy and bold individuals are. But there's still so so it looks like things get pushed in the right direction. But to me, there's still a very big gap between that and um, individuals in a population that are so predator savvy that the population is actually persisting in the face of you know heavy predation by cats and foxes. right. it's It's promising work, it's really important work, and important that people do it. It's still unclear whether it will get us to where we want to be.
0: And I, I guess it would be fairly difficult to balance um, the strong enough selection from, from predation with, uh, uh, you know, the amount of predation that actually has a negative impact on population sizes, uh, particularly with the varying sensitivity of certain target species that are going to be in those diverse communities
1: that's that's dead right and you know selection um in some cases can can take a long time yeah um so it would be kind of better if you could you know have 50 betongs and say those five are the best at recognizing or evading predators we're going to take those five and we're going to breed from them and then in the next generation saying we're going to take those five you know that would be really forcing things along but we can't do that so um it could take a while
0: yeah yeah sure and the uh you you also mentioned the idea of uh, gene drives so gene drives being for example uh adding a, a genetically modified male into the population who uh produces more and more males to skew the sex ratio so there's not as many breeding events if you if you uh introduce a bunch of males that only have male offspring then eventually you'll have so many male offspring uh at the you know throughout the population that they struggle to find mates and the population size slowly decreases because of that reduction in reproductive capacity because of these gene drives um has there been much progress in that
1: um people are are working on gene drives but not in cats um so they've developed um They've been able to to show proof of concept, I suppose, in some invertebrates uh, in the lab. I
0: believe mosquitoes, right?
1: Yeah, mosquitoes, um, fruit flies, and um, yeast, I think. Right. Uh, a, a group working to try and develop this system in mice. So, and I'm not sure exactly where that's at, but the last I heard they were hitting various technical hurdles, um, I guess in the transition from sort of invertebrates up to, to vertebrates. It's got, I mean, it'd be super if we could get something like that to work, but it's not without problems. Um, for a start, selection's always going to be pushing against any system like that. So I can imagine it working potentially quite well in like an island system where you've got a limited population and if you can get the, the drive through the population quickly enough, you could eliminate the population. But on a continent, you'd be needing to release gene drive new gene drives constantly um a bit like you do with disease like new strains of disease
0: right so you're effectively trying to get it to reach fixation throughout the population and a big widespread population like mainland australia is a challenge
1: Yeah, it would be there'd be so much selection to um get and to get around the gene drive um, and it, there's other issues too like you know that we need to think of i think as a society um <sighs> One is like, can we trust ourselves to use that sort of technology in a responsible way? Will will the public even accept something like that? Like given the reaction of the public to genetically modified food, this is like GMO on steroids. Like, you know.
0: <laughs> Yeah, it's putting a genetically modified feral organism into a population of feral organisms, expecting it to solve the feral organism population, which yeah. people have a bit of uh, maybe uh, mistrust of with the way that... Uh, biological control has uh failed before or at least been problematic
1: and, and we need to have um we need to be able to stop it so you know we need to get rid of feral cats in australia but not very far away there are other species uh, other types of cat that are highly endangered and if that gene drive could um and we know that lots of cats can interbreed by the way small cats are very good at interbreeding so if the gene drive got offshore into, you know Oof. yeah so we need to be able to stop it so there's a there's a heap of issues um to solve i'm not saying that we shouldn't explore gene drives i think you know a potentially really powerful tool we should solve we should explore gene drives but there's a heap of other issues that we need to consider at the same time
0: right right is is there any particular avenue of uh, these approaches that you think is most likely to be successful or uh are we just going to have to wait and see?
1: Uh, with gene drives specifically, or, or
0: well, no, I mean uh, of of these uh, different approaches. Uh, let's say uh, the Felix are traps, mm. guardian dogs, uh, managing fire and grazing, uh, the evolutionary uh, or adaptive training, or or gene drives. Do you, do you see more of a light at the end of the tunnel in one of these than the other?
1: No, I think we're going to need to use a mix of things. Uh, even with gene drives, which sort of holds the biggest promise for being a silver bullet. I like I say, I don't think it could be a that silver bullet on a continental scale so even there i think you know it could be a really important part of the mix maybe eradicating cats from large islands um so we're going to have to keep using a mixture of these different techniques but you know they are some of them like felix's are new and the new baiting te- technology so we we are still innovating and we are getting better at knowing which technique to use in which circumstance um so we have to we have to just keep pushing along in this kind of um, in this way of using um, lots of different methods, depending on the situation.
0: Yeah. Well, look, excellent. Uh, I I wish you guys obviously the best luck. And uh, uh, is there, uh, I know you probably don't want to give away too many secrets, but is there, is there anything that you're particularly working on uh, in feral cats at the moment that you're excited about that you can uh, tell us about, or is it all hush hush?
1: No, I'll, I'll tell you, we have got a paper. It's, it's in review. Um, now, But we did a bit of work to try and estimate uh, the cost of cat-borne diseases um, to people and livestock. So to go, yeah, to go back one step, cats carry lots of diseases that c- they can pass to other animals and humans. But they actually carry some where the pathogen depends on the cat for part of its life cycle. So these pathogens and the diseases didn't exist in Australia until cats were introduced. So they're new to Australia. Wow. So there's things like toxoplasmosis, um, sarcosystis, and, and a couple of other things. So we thought, well, let's have a go at figuring out how much this costs the economy. So we compiled all the information that we could to, to do that. We came to a final figure of $6 billion a year.
0: Oh, wow.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah mostly from to- toxoplasmosis is the most expensive.
0: Wow, that's that's not in, insignificant. So toxoplasmosis, obviously, uh, transferred from cats to uh, uh, native animals, could be really bad. But people get it fairly frequently. Is that uh, that's, uh, is that the cat scratch? Uh,
1: no, cat scratch disease is is another organism that causes sort of you know short term fevers and and so on. But toxoplasmosis, toxoplasma, is a parasite that infects about thirty percent of Australians, almost a third of us, and. You know if the if the symptoms range from nothing, asymptomatic to um to death, actually.. Wow. So you know you experience nothing, you could get kind of like a flu for a week, or if you're immunocompromised, you can get all sorts of complications that can lead to death. If you're a pregnant woman and you don't already have toxoplasma and you get infected by it for the first time whilst pregnant, that can cause miscarriage and congenital defects. So they're all very serious health consequences, but the biggest bill from Toxoplasma comes from the way it changes our behavior. So there's a uh, mounting evidence now that it, it changes, not just in us, but in other animals as well, how risk averse we are. So what that means is that if you look at people, for example, who are involved in car accidents, they're more likely to be infected by Toxoplasma than background. So so workplace accidents, the same, um, people with Toxoplasma, there's an association between Toxoplasma and a lot of mental health issues, schizophrenia, Wow. depression, uh, suicide rates are higher for people with Toxoplasma, and it goes on and on. So all of that um, – Amounts to a very substantial cost to our health and, and also to the economy, of course.
0: Fascinating. Look, I look forward to reading it. Um, uh, where, uh, so that's, that's in review at the moment. So I guess we'll just keep, keep our ear to the ground and see what happens. Yeah. yeah. Wonderful. All right. Well, look, uh, we have to wrap things up shortly, but uh, if you've got time, we'll jump onto a couple of quick uh, new research topics. Um, and we're just going to have a quick look today at two papers. The first one here, um, and we will jump over right now. So starting with Sautha et al Tox, uh, taxonomic identification of Madagascar's free-ranging forest cats. I'm just going to read this straight from the abstract abstract uh, abstract. <laughs> abstract. Uh, Madagascar does not have native wild felid species. However, distinct populations of free-ranging forest cats of unknown species are known throughout the island including Ankarafant. Sika National Park, uh, probably butchered that, uh, Beza Mahafali Special Reserve, uh, Makira Natural Park, and Masoala Peninsula. The Malagasy forest cats are commonly considered invasive lemur predators and competitors with endemic carnivores, as well as a nuisance exotic species that kills poultry. These species may be descendants of African wildcats, European wildcats, and or domestic cats. However, no research on their genetic origin has been published to determine their taxonomic status. Genetic data from short tandem repeat markers, uh, STRs or microsatellites, um, was assessed for three wild-caught forest cats from the Beza-Mahafali Special Reserve and 27 forest cats from the... Oh, here we go again, the tough one. ankara Fantsika National Park. Uh, Bayesian analyses comparing the Malagasy forest cats to approximately... Ah... Uh. 1,900 domestic and wildcat subspecies suggest the Malagasy cats are descendants of domestic cats from the Arabian Sea region, including islands of Lamu and Pate, Dubai, Kuwait, and Oman. Uh, Additional genetic influences may descend from India and Pakistan combined with cultural and historical information. These data suggest that these filled populations are likely to descend from cats that immigrated to the island on trade ships, particularly along early Arab trade routes. So let's have a look at these little guys here. Fantastic looking little cats you got that beautiful speckled very well camouflaged forest pattern and you can see that in a and b domestic cat up there on the top and you can see a bit of mixing here in d with those lovely white feet those are some of their sampling locations and you can have a look at their microsatellite structure here so this uh pink stuff down here i believe is uh the malagasy forest cats themselves and uh it does group with these uh the yellow and the the rest of this stuff here, which I, I believe is, uh, those Arabian Peninsula and middle Eastern cats. Uh, very, very cool paper. Um, so, uh, yeah, I guess, uh, Sarah, your opinion on these, uh, these, uh, forest cats, they, they've obviously been there for a while, but, um, uh, they, they seem fairly naturalized. Um, is is there a point? Is there a point where you think the impacts kind of balance out?
1: Yeah, I haven't. I haven't actually. I forgot that you wanted me to read that paper, but I think I can. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't do my homework. So I guess the issue is like people are wondering whether they they belong, whether they're naturalized enough, and they should be looked after, whether they're still ferals. You know, that's always a very tricky question. It's such a value laden judgment. Right. But um, yeah. I mean, it. I guess some of the threads that you that you described or read there is that issue of the diaspora of cats on ships is um that is exactly how cats got transported across the world from the middle east
0: right and 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 as you mentioned they do have a quite an ability to hybridize as you saw with that mixed domestic forest cat that we just saw
1: yeah they're very good all the small cats can interbreed um so there's seven species of uh, felis and they can all interbreed in fact they can even breed with other genera of small cats wow so yeah, so I guess they've, um, and it's interesting that the picture there of the forest cat looks very like an African wildcat, which is the original, which is where domestic cats come from. So I, I suppose that the issue for, for Malagasy's becomes, well, now they they know that it is just, a, it's basically a feral cat that's naturalized and, and living unsupported, and then the issues will is it a problem yeah i guess people have to decide whether it's a problem whether it's affecting other values that are important to them and if it is what they do about it yeah i I guess uh, probably
0: needs a bit more of an understanding of that suspected lemur predation and how how significant that really is
1: yeah yeah that's right
0: all right okay moving on on onto our next paper nice and briefly so we can all get moving for the rest of the day uh, <laughs> um, and on to why song at all on the right track placement of camera traps on roads improves detection of predators and shows non-target impacts of feral Cat baiting. This is in uh, wildlife research. So, to understand the ecological consequences of predator management, reliable and accurate methods are needed to survey and detect predators and the species with which they interact. Recently, poison baits have been developed specifically for lethal and broad scale control of feral cats in Australia. However, the potential non target effects of these baits on other predators, including native apex predators such as dingoes, and in turn, the cascading effects on lower trophic level uh, large herbivores, etc., are poorly understood. We aimed, uh, well, we examined the effects of variation in camera trapping survey design uh, has on detecting Dingoes, feral cats, and macropodids, and how different habitat types affect species occurrences. We then examined how feral cat poison baiting events influences the occupancy of these sympatric species. So they deployed over 80 remotely triggered camera traps over a large area, uh, 2,410 square kilometers in the Matua Indigenous Protected Area in the semi arid rangelands of WA, and using a single season site occupancy model to calculate detection probabilities and occupancy for target species before and after baiting. So let's have a look here at this, this trap design. Look at that. That is a lot of traps. So the triangles here you can see are where they placed uh, their camera traps right alongside, let's have a little zoom here, um, alongside roads and the circles are placed off roads. So, I mean, obviously, the, from this scale, it looks like the circles are still on the roads, but this is a very, very large map. So I can imagine that this is basically driving along the road, and at every triangle, you basically set up a camera on the road, and every circle, you got to hike some camera gear out into some scrub. Quite a job, I imagine. And uh, let's uh, just have a quick look down here at their results as well. Oh, beautiful habitat shots here as well. You can see the grasslands and woodlands there in WA, even a few captures, some... Uh, some uh, camels and a lovely emu. Beautiful. Let's uh, go down to here. And you can see along the road, uh, the cat captures are uh, fairly high. Right? Macropodids, not so much difference. And, uh, yeah, the uh, occupancy didn't really uh, change too much. But you can see uh, the uh, on-road probability of detection in uh, cats and dingoes, much higher. Not too much difference in, uh, in macropods. So, obviously, those roadside survey sites seem to be the way to go. Is is, is that something that uh, they, they also spoke about, these linear movements of, uh, of of a lot of these predators? Is that more to do with the structure of roads just being straight or do, do a lot of predators seem to have these kind of linear search patterns?
1: No. I think, um, so for a start, I mean, if, if you walk through those spinifex habitats, you'll understand why the predators are on the roads. They're not silly. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs>
0: yeah yeah they don't want to get their feet
1: stubbed no um (laughs) so um you know they can walk along the roads because they're predators so a lot of non-predators will avoid roads because it's they're more conspicuous and more visible and predators are on the roads so you know it's not it's not unusual to find that predators will use these thoroughfares whereas prey will not what you sometimes find is that the big predators use the thoroughfares and the small predators don't because they're trying to avoid, avoid, in this case, the dingo. So Mike and his colleagues didn't find that here. Um, but in terms of, you know, I think they're just, if they're just trying to get to A and B, they're going to go the easiest route. So they'll go a track, they'll use um, cattle pads. Um, cats, when they're moving, will often move along the boundaries of, you know, thicker vegetation with um, more open vegetation because they like to be able to move stealthily pounce when they need to into something that's in the open so if they're hunting they'll often be on an edge like that um but yeah and and dingoes i think they need to move long distances and if the quickest way to get there is along a road that's what they're going to use so
0: yeah absolutely
1: yeah,
0: yeah I, I guess uh, yeah in general ecotones make a, a a nice spot to find a nice diversity of prey as well mm, yeah yeah. yeah interesting interesting another fantastic paper um but i think we pretty much have to wrap it up there uh professor sarah legg thank you so much for joining us uh really really enjoyed our chat um where can people find your book cats in australia companion and killer uh
1: well if you go to the uh online website for CSIRO publishing csiro publishing you can find the book there
0: wonderful wonderful and uh you'll have some more research coming out people can uh keep an eye out for that uh that costings uh paper um which we uh we look forward to um and uh they can find you on uh, twitter at uh, tsr hub i believe is that all correct
1: that's right yep
0: wonderful wonderful thank you so much for joining us i really enjoyed our chat before we go uh what is that cute little thing behind you in the uh, on the screen that cute little uh thing in the, in the... yeah this is
1: <laughs> This is a, a ah, beautiful. Um He lives just outside my bathroom window. And um, I mentioned before, there's a carpet python that lives out there too. So we try to keep the carpet python fed with the house mice that we catch in the house <laughs> so that the carpet python... Won't eat the <laughs> Uh
0: Well, look, uh, it's doing a good job of uh, keeping some of your rodents down uh, by the sound of it. Uh, happy little carpet python. Um, yeah, best of luck to the melomies. Um Thank you again for joining us. Really enjoyed your chat. And uh, hopefully if uh, some uh, you get some time once this new uh, Costings paper comes out, we'd love to have a chat with you again.
1: That'd be great. Thanks for having me.
0: All right, no worries. Cheers. Thanks again. All right, everybody. That's been Professor Sarah Legg. Uh, and uh, we shall be back with much more wildlife cake and cocktails very shortly.
1: Thanks for joining us, guys.